actually, forgive me, we'll be reading a, a brief text. So, uh, if you have the handout, you can look there for the text from Romans. Owe no one anything except to love one another. This is Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You may be seated. So we're reminded our obligations our obligations are always and only to keep the law of God. The commandments provide for us an organizational way to think about what we owe. We owe love to God and love to neighbor. Love to God is defined by the first four commandments. Love to neighbor is defined by the last six commandments. Love does what's good for the neighbor. It does not do harm. There is no neutrality. When your obligation is to not harm, you have the obligation to do good, and there is nothing in between. The law of God gives us a distinction of all the categories to know what is good and what is evil. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So we're going to be considering the negative aspects of the Ninth Commandment today. The Ninth Commandment is to not bear false witness against your neighbor. So question 145 from the larger catechism says, what are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth, and the good name of our neighbors, as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning, or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, Denying the gifts and graces of God. Aggravating smaller faults. Hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession. Unnecessary discovering of infirmities. Raising false rumors. Receiving and countenancing evil reports. And stopping our ears 
against just defense. Evil suspicion. Envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any. Endeavoring or desiring to impair it. Rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy. Scornful contempt. Fond admiration. Breach of lawful promises. Neglecting such things as are of good report. And practicing or not avoiding ourselves. We're not hindering what we can in others. Such things as procure an ill name. Let's look at the first bit there. This is sort of the general rule, the explanation of the the general duty, point one on page two. The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own especially in public judicature. All right, so we're not to prejudice the truth. We're not to prejudice the truth means we are not to set things up so that people have prejudged or have things set up in their own minds so as to encourage the rejection of the truth. Now, you can do that in yourself, and you can do that to other people. And since self-deception, since unbelief, is the great and central sin, the root of all other sins. We ought to pay careful attention to the problem of self-deception. Now, in addition to that, we can sometimes serve the world system and the king of that system. And so we have to be careful to not prejudice the truth in the minds of others. The good name of our neighbor is also something that we can prejudice. We can also prejudice our own good name. We can prejudice the good name of our neighbor by setting things up so that people think more lowly of their virtues and more highly of their vices than they ought to think. And we can do that to ourselves. If you're a wise man, a righteous man, and then you publicly commit some smaller error, you put a fly in the ointment and cause your own reputation to be harmed beyond what you might expect. And so we have this concern to care for our own reputation, the reputations of others, and to be concerned to not prejudice the truth for ourselves or others. And there is a special emphasis, an underlining, bolding, and italicizing of this command in public judicature. When matters of public justice are being dealt with. And so public justice in the church courts and in the civil courts. Now... There are degrees, right? You, get, you have public justice, which is the most severe place to bear false witness. But you also have authorities that are under that. For example, in the household, a master or mistress of the house may call children or servants to bear witness. And though that's not public justice, it is a matter of justice. And so in that place, there is a heightening from just ordinary life 
and yet still it is not as high as the concern for public justice. And so the highest degree of sin in this category of lying is bearing false witness against your neighbor in public justice. So we need to view that. That's the way that the ninth commandment is laid out for us. Is that's the that's the highest sort of wickedness in the category of lying. Now I want to walk through this a little bit more, and I want to break it down, thinking about the prophetic, priestly, and kingly giftings in terms of, of this, because I want to I want to start to I want to encourage you to think about that in terms of yourself, but also in terms of application to the world. And you can do this with all the commandments. With every commandment, you can take the prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly, and a think about it for organizing principle under the law in terms of giftings and weaknesses as relate to that. And so what I, what I want to do is to, is to talk about that. And as a preface to that, I want to remind you the last verse that's cited in the positive duties is Philippians 4.8. It's an interesting sort of place where we're left off. And so I want to give that to you again as we get into the negative. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That and Psalm 1, which we'll be singing after the sermon, are reminders to you to meditate on the things that are true and good. And so we're called to do that. We're to meditate on these things. Our thoughts are day and night to be on the things that are just and pure and noble and true, the things that are praiseworthy and virtuous, the things that bring good report, the things that are lovely. And so we are to meditate on these things all the time. Now, let's think about this in terms of the prophetic. Right? The prophetic gifting set is the gifting set in terms of truth-telling and thinking about truth. And, and it's, it's about this idea of, of rebuking falsehood and tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. And so everybody is called to be prophetic. If you, if you don't know the truth, if you don't have saving faith, if you aren't thinking truth, if you aren't applying truth, then you're not able to use any gifting. So you are all rational creatures. We are all rational creatures. And justification is by truth thinking. Understanding and believing the truth. Now, we are all conceived in a state of prejudice against the truth. We are conceived in a state of unbelief. And we see the truth as absurd. And so the problem of self-deception is the epistemic state that man is conceived in since the fall and apart from Christ. And so this overcoming the Lord Jesus Christ sends His Holy Spirit and He tears down the prejudices shatters the strongholds and plants a flag and causes you to understand and believe the truth. The Holy Spirit overcomes 
the deadness there. He takes your dead soul, which deadness is, is pretty much the maximal prejudice against liveness. And so the deadness of the soul, he transforms into aliveness by a resurrection of the soul. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, the vicar of Christ. Now, that prejudicing of the truth in our own minds, that self-deception, is something that we have a, an obligation to continue in the pursuit of. Having been let into spiritual life, we are now to root out all of the deadness. We are to cut out the deadness. There is a leprosy of mind that is every false belief that you have, and you must cut out that gangrenous, lying matter. And there is a continued regenerative work of enlivening of the soul that continues. And so we have to think about how do we, how do we put ourselves in a position to be disposed toward the truth. Now, that is controlled largely by the content that we take in and the content that we meditate on. What we choose to focus on. So, what we say comes out of the inward man and what we do comes out of the inward man. We can, by our own words, prejudice ourselves or set ourselves up for truth-thinking. And we can do that to other people, too. Prejudicing the truth by words is setting things up for the rejection of the truth by making falsehood seem reasonable and right, while making truth look unreasonable and wrong. Suggesting that the truth is not true, is not of good report, is not praiseworthy. I think true and a good report are most associated with the prophetic office. This idea of, of bringing a good report, the idea of the expression of truth. When we look at the list of of the things that are noble, sorry, true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy, right? True and of good report, in particular, are associated with the prophetic office. And then this idea of being praiseworthy is something that I think connects to all of them, although if you had to pick, um, there's a way of applying those distinctly. So if praiseworthy, the prophetic office is to point to what is praiseworthy. The priestly office is supposed to offer praise as a sacrifice and the kingly office is concerned about the praiseworthiness of, of the actions of the one performing and so there's this honor orientation there, right? So there's, there's a different way you can look at praiseworthiness but I've listed it with all three. So our words impact our own thoughts as well as the thoughts of those who hear them. That's kind of redundant because we are hearers of our own words. We hear them before we speak them, and we speak them and hear them again. And so that, that, that impact is multiplied on ourselves. So the words that we speak can prejudice truth. And so you can see this in various manifestations. Propaganda, where you're using emotional appeals, right, which is sort of the norm of our own media age, uses story and images and relatable characters and characters that you feel bad for, they're sympathetic, and, and the, the use of those things in order to make the truth look ugly. 
or the use of those things to make falsehood look beautiful. And so you, you can think about that in, in many ways that are more seedy or less seedy. But we, we see that in common media. And then, you know, you can think about Proverbs 7 with the harlot and how she uses those methodologies to make sin look beautiful. And so you have this lying propaganda work and the appeal to the senses and the appeal to the emotions is a powerful part of that. And so it's our job to dispossess people, partly, from the rule of feeling. A part of the work of the prophet is to remove the slavery to feeling and to encourage people to think and to critically analyze, to examine those things. And then there is the appeal to force. And the appeal to force that, you know, something bad's going to happen to you if you don't believe this falsehood. That, that, that is another thing that we are called in the prophetic work to say, okay, but is pain the opposite of the good? Like, if you have pain, does that mean you don't have the good? Wouldn't that imply that the good is pleasure? Is it possible that pain can be possessed simultaneously with the good? So could you have the knowledge of God and suffer for it? Not ultimately, but for a time. And so calling to examine that thing, to consider the claims of coercion and emotion, and to see them to be liars. Now you can rightly use beauty, and you can rightly use force in support of the truth, For example, when somebody speaks false witness in public justice and seeks to bring a false claim against someone else, the appropriate response is to use force to put upon their own head the very thing they sought to bring falsely on someone else's. Falsely accuse somebody of murder when you're the one that murdered? You know, somebody walks in, you just finished the job. You did it. You call the police first. I just walked in on a guy who murdered somebody. He calls them five seconds later. I just walked in on a guy who murdered somebody. If it's evident that you have wrongly accused somebody else, you're to receive that punishment. Now, in the case of murder, we can't kill the guy twice. But it is two capital crimes. There's a way to use beauty in support of the truth, and that's to show the true beauty of things. And showing the true beauty of things is done by encouraging the thoughtfulness about what is true and how it is beautiful and the goodness of things. And it's also done by manifesting good works and then seeking to maximally beautify those. And you can do that with art. You can do that with the the life that exists in a place. And you can do that with your own actions and the way that you word things, being more skillful rather than less skillful. And so, but the prophetic has this power not so much to do that, right? The, the, the beautifying work is priestly. But the, the prophet has to be willing to engage with false beauty and tears off the mask. The prophet throws a bucket of water to make the makeup smear. Prejudicing the, tru- prejudicing the truth by actions, making the truth look wrong by your own sins, right? That's why you can talk about how your own sin is a bad testimony. 
or by using abusive ad hominem or invalid or unsound arguments. So you don't want to use bad argumentation. You set up prejudices. You create associations. You encourage associative thinking that way. The, the part of the work of the prophet is to discourage associative thinking. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, sometimes. There's also smoke caused by other things. Satan and marketing efforts are often used together. <laughs> but Satan and marketing efforts use similar tactics. Uh, my sermon on Proverbs 7, like I mentioned to you already, discusses those tactics. So if you want to review those, please go back to that. So let's go to the priestly. Uh, Priestly prejudicing of the truth by wrongly valuing different things and setting wrong associations and ends with truth and falsehood. So think about lots of stories. Um, I heard somebody uh, give a lecture this week in which they said, you know, the gospel of Disney is you can, obey, you can disobey your dad and in the end he will apologize to you and everyone will be happy. That's the gospel of Disney. Okay. Now, every now and then, it's replaced with a mom, like Entangled. Okay. But she's a homeschooling mom, so basically as bad as a dad. So that process of thinking about that, there, there's a, an associative thing there where there's a beautifying of the disobedience toward parents. And there's this effort to say, See, you will live happily ever after if you have these actions. There's an associative thought process that's occurring there. And the associative thought process is to encourage a sense of a sort of halo effect is the marketing term, where you connect a bunch of things that are good, like living happily ever after, and having you know, somebody like your dad apologize to you for something when you did something. And that feeling, how that would feel really good, and you connect it with the disobedience to parents to do what you feel like doing. And so that is a beautifying of and a prejudicing of the mind against truth. It's a beautifying of evil. So with words, so with our thoughts, if we consume things that do that, we are, we are prejudicing our thoughts. If we don't analyze those things critically. We can then speak things. We can, we can prejudice the truth by speaking in such a way as to show that truth is not pure, right? not holy. We can speak in such a way as to think that truth is not lovely. We can, we can speak in such a way as to try to say that truth is not praiseworthy. So the office of priest is, is connected with uh, holiness, right? purity, and with the lovely, the beautiful. And so this, this there, we, we see these things associated with the, the priestly office. So when you when you make truth not look pure or lovely, you are being an anti-priest. And if you make evil look pure and lovely, you're being an anti-priest. You're you're training your affections and other people's trainings or other people's affections wrongly. So then with actions you can do the same thing, and that's by being unholy, being um, unlovely, doing things that are unpraiseworthy. By doing them, you're saying, actually, this is pure. Actually, this is lovely. Actually, this is praiseworthy. You are, by your actions, encouraging other people by example. Think about that when it comes to leadership. Right? The, the actions of leaders are most frequently copied. You can, one of the best ways to destroy a culture is to convince the leaders of that culture to do wickedness. 
and the example cascades down. Think about anybody who was alive and thinking much during this time. Think about the 1990s with Bill Clinton and how his sexual sins brought discussion of sexuality and wickedness into the public square in a cascading way that dramatically increased the public discussion of sexual sin. His infidelity to his wife resulted in that. And what was often done when he was uh, brought up for impeachment and then when he was on trial was to try to downplay the wickedness of his covenant breaking to his wife to try to say, how does this affect his public office? His perjury while in office was downplayed in an effort to say, how does this affect his public office? And so that activity, the, the, the beautifying of evil, the downplaying of the ugliness, there are powerful effects there. And so public... Uh, the broadly available culture is affected by this. I'll talk about that more when we get down to E. With the kingly, prejudicing the truth by wrongly choosing things that are not noble, not just, not virtuous, not praiseworthy. Right? Nobility and justice and virtue are kingly attributes. If you think about things wrongly so that you're not choosing the noble, not choosing the just, not choosing the virtuous or the praiseworthy... There's this way that you are shattering the kingliness of your own soul. You're prejudicing yourself in favor of falsehood. You are prejudicing the truth. And so by the speaking of the same things, you can, you can do that. And also by your actions, you can do that. So we, we see that in terms of these kingly virtues. So I'd ask you to consider the way in which we can prejudice the truth in prophetic ways, priestly ways, and kingly ways. And there's ways that we can, on the other hand, work against that prophetically, priestly, and kingly. And so, when we get to point E, the prejudicing of the truth to ourselves and others by what we produce and what we consume alone or with others, and by being around those who do not influence us to think what is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, or of good report. Those things that are virtuous or praiseworthy. Think about your companions if you are not boldly telling people the truth, and, second condition, if you are not being boldly told the truth, and, third condition, you are not working on something good. Those are the three conditions. Then, a companion is wasting your time, and you are wasting theirs. Somebody should be truth-telling or everybody should be doing something good. Or you're wasting time. Now, truth-telling is a subcategory of good action, right? But I want you to think about that. And so when you think about anything you're producing, when you make stuff, you are telling people things. And when you consume things, you're being told things. So I want you to think about music and the audio arts. If you're not learning 
What value does it give? Well, you could be reminded. It could be a beautifying of things that are good. Okay? But reminding is a sort of learning, like being reminded. Hey, are, are you analyzing the, the thing to teach about it? Right? You could, you could listen to Linkin Park in order to give people popular manifestations of nihilism. It's very clear. I tried so hard. But in the end, it didn't even matter. Listen to that a thousand times on repeat. Tell me if it affects your motivation. It's very catchy, though. If you're not learning or analyzing something in order to teach, and if you're also not being encouraged to what is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, or praiseworthy, then you're wasting your own time. And if you're producing it, then you're wasting your time in the production process and the time of all who will listen. This is a, a priestly endeavor to waste time. We're called to redeem the time. You will die and sooner than you would like. And you have to use the time well. With movies, TV shows, YouTube... See above, look at music. Same question. Are you being encouraged? Are you encouraging? Are you analyzing it? With books, audiobooks, podcasts, lectures, sermons, see what I said about music. Are you being encouraged? Are you encouraging? Are you going to teach on it? You can analyze as a teaching of yourself. But we like to be passive consumers. We like to just kind of enjoy the thing. And we like to lie to ourselves that it will not affect our souls. It will not shape our affections. It will not influence our choices. And it will not prejudice our thought. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And you need to rebuke yourself. It's a lie. And we're all tempted to it. Because we all crave novelty to escape from the difficulties of life. Which are numerous. The difficulties of life are numerous. And we have to learn to label them and associate them with the proper doctrines. When I prepare to sleep by watching nonsense, I do not wake up with godly peace. The amusement simply delays the anxiety. If I instead engage in prayer and reading and profitable discussion or listening to or watching useful things, the sleep is less fitful and the waking more peaceful. I think I can universalize that because of what the Word of God says. It is not just my experience. That experience is illustrative of what we're told to do. We are to think on the things that are pure, lovely, and praiseworthy. The things that are noble, just, virtuous, and praiseworthy. The things that are true and of good report that are praiseworthy. Companions, music, audio arts, movies, TV shows, YouTube, dare I say rumble. These all have content on them that does not meet that criteria. 
the companions are often wasters of time. And these companions need not spend time with you physically. They can be on the phone. They can be over some sort of other digital communication. They can be writing to you. Or they can simply be giving you produced content. Remember, our companions that can corrupt our morals include the music, audio arts, movies, TV shows, YouTube, books, audiobooks, podcasts, lectures, sermons, games played and watched, pictures and visual arts. They all affect our thoughts. And so you have to choose those well. Now, all those categories, you can make things that encourage truthfulness in thought and encourage the affections to right things and encourage choice to the right things. We can do this with all the sensations, smells, tastes. And one of the things that happened in my own life, for example, is I grew up and I developed a love for Christmas through the incorporation of senses in the beautification of evil. Family feasting, gift giving, the gathering together, all those good times. The assembling together of people that I loved, enjoying the time, all of the glories of that were put together and given to Christmas. It's our job to not beautify things that are not biblical. It's our job to beautify things that are biblical. So, when you think about the Lord's Day, how do you make it a delight? When you think about hospitality and friendship and fellowship, when you think about the things that are appointed by God, as opposed to the man-made inventions that we have around us, how do we make it so that there's an incorporation of things in a lawful way that beautify So, one of the glories of private worship and of household worship is that you practice singing the psalms. And the practicing of the singing of psalms makes it so that our public worship has better singing, more beautiful singing. Choirs, which are a part of the temple system, were continued in the church because people neglected private and household singing. And so, choirs were a way of trying to pull in a, a group of people and establish a, an element of the old covenant and bring it into the new covenant worship and to have the choir, a set of people who are better at offering the sacrifice of praise away from the unwashed masses of non-singing practicing. And that group then is able to stand in front of and be observed by the non-priestly class. Right? And you can replace that with a worship band. And so the movement towards the consumption of worship rather than the participation of worship is because of the desire to see beautiful things and attract people with beauty. But we can beautify the worship, the simple worship of God with the appointed means by practicing in private worship and household worship. And when you're joyful, sing psalms. And so, the beautifying of things. You know, pagan worship tends to incorporate all of the senses. Vodi Bauckham talks about in Family Driven Faith, it's one of his first books, he talked about the idea that he was raised in a Buddhist home. And there was fruit and incense, and there was the holding of beads, and there was the hearing of chants, and the seeing of a Buddhist statue. 
and that all of these things together and the crispness of the beauty of fresh fruit and all that stuff, he had this tactile memory set associated with it and he associated it with his mother. And so there's all of that there that affected and shaped his soul. And so there was a prejudicing there against Christianity and in favor of Buddhism with all these emotional attachments. The things we associate powerful memories with in ourselves and with our children and with those that we influence. The creation of art in ordinary life is powerful to set associations. If you have gifts and talents to be able to create beauty, put it to the service of God. We should make our Christian virtues beautiful in the ways that God appoints so that we can show the beauties of the truth and remove all prejudicing of the truth wherever possible. But I ask you to consider, analyze, what is it that you consume and what is it that you produce? What music do we listen to? Does it shape our feelings and desires and the view of the world so that we think of what is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, or praiseworthy? If not, what are you doing? The same thing with movies, the same thing with TV shows, the same thing with the books you listen to. You can shape your affections. You can look at and desire things, property. You can look at and desire women. You can, you can read books that make you dissatisfied with the romantic capabilities of your husband. You can do all sorts of things that make it so that you have your affections wrongly shaped by lies. And so we're called to remove the prejudices and to shape our affections and to shape our choices and to set our thinking upon the things that are true. Now that results in an overflow of what we, cons- what we produce. Now, look at G. What, we, what can be consumed with analysis is different from what cannot. We should analyze everything we consume. If you're listening to something or watching something, if you're looking at a piece of art, right, you ought to be analyzing. The analyzing is what we're called to do. If you're not analyzing, you're passively consuming and you're being shaped by the thing. So we're called to analyze. And so there are some things that can be consumed without sin. With small children, the desire is to figure out what's the best stuff I can put in front of them to help to shape their affections and to help to set their prejudices. And then you're trying to help them still to analyze and to get to a place where they're thinking about it and the meaning of it and considering is this true. The things that you watch in a more mature state or listen to, you have to analyze them. And if you just passively enjoy them without analysis, the danger is great in how it will shape your thoughts. Now, if you analyze things with others, like if you sit and watch a show or a movie with other people, and you pause and talk, oftentimes you will find yourself not invited anymore. And so the idea would be to help to set a cultural expectation that that is the sort of thing that should be done. Now, you can watch through a thing in full and then talk about it. But the idea that the less mature an audience is, if you're watching something with your children, pause and talk. They can't disinvite you. 
until they get older, and then hopefully they're mature. But when you're going through stuff, you pause and talk. Now, if it's no longer fun to consume while analyzing, and if it's not profitable or interesting to analyze in light of the Word of God, then it's not worth watching or listening to. Period. No exceptions. Absolute. You're wasting time. And possibly worse. If you want to produce content, you should never produce anything that's edgy until you've produced excellent things that are simple. You should never produce anything edgy until you've produced something excellent that's simple. What is edgy? Things you produce while sitting on the edge of your seat? No. Edgy is about getting to the edge of a norm. It's about transgressing or coming close to transgressing boundaries. That's the idea. It's supposed to make people think about the sharpness of distinctions. And so, if you're trying to think about the sharpness of distinctions, is this really wrong? What if the husband is really annoying? Is that okay to ignore his commands then? You know, that, that sort of thing. There's the question of, you're trying to get to the edge. So you have movies that glorify adultery by saying, here's this husband, he's not good, and here's this wife, and she meets somebody, and they fall in love, and shouldn't she really go after true love as opposed to keeping her vows, her oaths, that sort of thing. So you'll have all these questions about authority in particular. Authority is the most common one to do edgy things about. You'll have the end-of-life sort of stuff. If this person is really unhappy being alive, wouldn't it be better if they just committed suicide? Yeah, so that's edgy, right? And so then there's an effort to beautify or deal with that. You can also try to answer the question and show how those edgy things are wrong, right? But that's rarely done now. How many things show the simple beauty of masculinity? How many things show the simple beauty of femininity? How many things show the simple beauty of obedience in childhood? Do it excellently. Learning to do those things, learning to make the simple beautiful, is talent. The thing about cooking simple dishes is all of your errors in technique are more obviously on display. So the nice thing about really complex dishes is you can hide errors of technique with an enormity of ingredients. And the same is true with story and music. It's funny, Bach has pieces that he made for practice. And the practice pieces are supposed to be you know, scales that are done, and there's a sort of simplicity to those. And you can listen to the scale exercises that Bach created, and they're beautiful. Some of, some of his more popular pieces are scale exercises. And so the ability to practice the simple and make it beautiful was a display of his mastery. And then he makes more complex things. And the beauty is shown in a more complex way that can be appreciated when you have a more complex understanding. So the creation of art. Can you make the simple beautiful. It makes it easier for you to refine your tastes. It makes it easier for you to make sure that you are doing what is right. And then moving on from there to make, once you've made an excellent simple thing, 
you can then make things that are more complex and more edgy. The edgy thing to do right now is to make beautiful, the true, noble, just, pure, lovely, things of good report, things that are virtuous, and things that are praiseworthy. That will get you canceled from lots of things. Right? In, our old culture, in our own culture, that's the way to transgress the cultural norm, is to praise the good. You can go out and say, oh, glories of heterosexual marriage. Right? You can see, imagine a Republican candidate saying that. <gasps> That, that phrase by itself, the Republican Party is running away from biblical marriage. That somehow is a thing that they are terrified to stand up for. They have to grandstand on, we know what boys and girls are, good for you, just great. You are so smart. Thank you for spending all of our political time on that. So beautifying the simple. And here's the other thing. Nobody's doing it. There are very few pieces of art that are good, that are modern, that simply beautify obvious things. And when they do come out, or when there's something that partly does it, the popularity of it is, is high, and the acclaim for it is high because of how rare it is. When you, when you think about business, business, you're always looking for a place where you have a competitive advantage, where there's less producers doing the same thing, and where you have opportunity to sell something to a larger market, and at the same time, to do it without having to compete just on price. If Hollywood were actually concerned about making money more than an ideology, they could make excellent movies that simply present the beauties of truth, and they would have blockbusters. There's an enormous amount of people who aren't even Christian who just crave something that has virtue in it. And the closest thing they can get is a movie with a bunch of superheroes that are inappropriately dressed. In the production of things, if you cannot make things that are simple and beautiful, then you have no business moving on to the complex. Master the simple before moving on to the complex. You've mastered the simple when people are willing to pay money to obtain the simple from you because of the way you make the simple product pleasant. It's easy for people to say something's good. If nobody offers you to pay for it, you know, it's sort of like going to a party and telling people about your business idea. Everybody goes, oh, that seems really great. It's really amazing. Okay, now next, here's the follow-up question. Great, would you pay $50 for that right now? If the answer is no, they don't mean what they said. And so until you can get somebody to give you money for the thing you're making, it's not something that is excellent. Okay, that's, a, that's a basic way of testing that. Excellence might be undervalued in our culture. Goodness will be undervalued in our culture. But if something's really excellent, somebody's going to pay something for it. Now, Point two, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth. So giving false evidence is obviously lying. You, 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 you make something up 
you come and you put something in a trial, you try and say, see, look, this, this shows that I, I did this thing, or that this other person did this thing. That's a way of lying. Calling witnesses that you know are going to lie. Sometimes this is called paying expert witnesses. That's one of the best ways to get that. But you can also, and some actual witnesses are not lying, right? They can be quite good. But the idea is you can, you can get false witnesses to come up and say things. Uh, that happens, you know, for example, with Naboth's vineyard, the effort to take Naboth's vineyard by having people come and say, this guy blasphemed God and he spoke against the king as a way of trying to kill him. Wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause. Right? If, you, if you know, one of, the, one of the great difficulties of potentially being a prosecutor, for example, or, and also of being a defense attorney, either one, would be the pressure to plead for an evil cause. There are so many laws that ought not to be laws that it would be very difficult for anybody who's a prosecutor now to keep their job while trying to apply the biblical standard of only arguing for biblical crimes. Pleading for an evil cause would be defending uh, somebody who you know is, has committed a wrong, not just by saying we have to give them a fair trial and that's insufficient evidence, but instead pleading for it by saying that it's actually the person's innocent when you know they're not. You can argue for there's not a sufficient case, but you cannot argue this person's actually innocent if you know they're not. Outfacing and overbearing the truth. That's another thing that can be done uh, in legal tactics or in debate tactics. Outfacing and overbearing the truth. Those are both sort of the same thing. To outface is to bear down with an imposing front or with impudence, to stare down. To overbear is to, to bear down, to press, to subdue. Okay, so you can, you can, with strength of presence and with strength of, of sort of continuation in a cause, you can outface and overbear. And so how many times are you aware of in your own life where you've seen somebody who is in the right be pushed back by a mob maybe a Twitter mob, maybe a mob of reporters or some other group where they're proclaiming the truth and by the, the force of presence and the imposition of other people, there's an outbearing or an overbearing and outfacing of the truth. Three, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. So, rewarding the wicked. We can wrongly countenance, smile at, pleasantly stay in the presence of those who are doing wickedness. How many times have you smiled and gone, I don't know what to do here. Right? Yeah, it's hard to figure out what to do in those situations, but we don't want to give the appearance of approval of things that are evil. One of the ways that I've failed at that. I, I can remember interviews with employees where I'm sitting and listening, you know, somebody who's trying to become an employee, listening to something they're expressing that is evil, going, oh, that's terrible. And so that difficulty of trying to figure out how, how do you deal with that? You don't want to wrongly put that face on. And so that's something that's hard to do. I am tempted towards not wanting to unnecessarily cause displeasure in another person. I think we're all tempted towards that. And so this, this desire 
to reward the wicked includes things like giving a good countenance, giving a word of approval or encouragement, or giving some sort of physical reward for something evil. Oftentimes, giving some sort of reward for something evil is, is sort of an effort to, to help somebody to be comforted in the midst of pain, but the pain is caused by something they did that's wrong. And so the rewarding of that evil mitigates the, the inherent suffering created in that evil doing. So that's a sort of passing of unjust sentence. It's a sort of calling evil good. Now on the other side of that, the rewarding of the righteous according to the work of the wicked is wrongly discountenancing, wrongly reproving, wrongly chastising. Right? That's passing unjust sentence. That's calling good evil. Now, on the rewarding of the wicked side, sometimes we fail to discountenance, we fail to reprove, we fail to chastise when we have a duty to do so. And on the positive side, we fail to countenance, commend, and reward people when we ought to. And so this is the calling of this. This is, especially if you have any sort of leadership at all, you're doing that all the time. You're, you're, you're countenancing or you're speaking in favor of or against, or you're rewarding or penalizing. And so the difficulties of leadership involve the constancy of that. Your face and body language are a part of that witness-bearing. And so one of the things that I think everybody who works tries to struggle through is you go, you've worked, you've had a bad day, and you're coming home, and you go, suck it up. I cannot discountenance everybody else for the things that have happened elsewhere. I don't want to transfer negativity to other people. And so that work is an important work. In particular, men, as you are out in the world and you're dealing with hard things, and then you come home, the importance of figuring out how to come home and make it good so you're not punishing and not making your presence negative for forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others. Okay, so forgery. What is, what is, why is forgery wrong? Forgery is wrong because you're presenting something and there's the obvious implication that this thing was from the authority that is claimed on it. It is, it is, it is a a setup for a lie that is, you can say, well, I'm not saying a lie. Well, you're writing a lie, and when asked for something in the presentation of it, you are obviously presenting something with the intention of communicating something false. And that forgery has, it's a sign. When you make a document that's a forgery, it's a sign. It's the same as a word because it's supposed to express a particular set of propositions. Approval by such and such. So it's not like putting a bush over a tank to hide it from airplanes during war. It's different. It's a claim of official recognition. It's a claim that someone has said, this is approved. That's why forgery is different from hiding tanks and shrubs. Now, concealing the truth is not generally forbidden. Okay, so we need to look at this. Concealing the truth, 
undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either reproof from, other, from ourselves or complaint to others. That's a set together. So all those are modified by when iniquity calls for reproof or complaint. So we are not to conceal the truth all the time. When somebody else commits an evil and you don't go proclaim it to the world, you're concealing the truth. Right? Somebody sins against you, you overlook it, you don't, you don't go to them and tell them what they did was wrong, you're concealing the truth. You're concealing the truth that you think somebody just did something bad. Is that sin? No. We're in fact called to do that a lot. Most of the time. Most of the time when you see somebody do something wrong, you are supposed to overlook or charitably interpret or whatever. So that concealing of the truth is not sin. Not a general concealing of the truth. The concealing of the truth that's evil is concealing of the truth when iniquity calls that you rebuke it. Or when it's so bad that it calls that you have to go tell it to somebody else. This is a criminal action. I need to tell the police. Undue silence in a just cause. Now, there might be a just cause that is very, very minor that doesn't need to be dealt with. You know, there ha- and that might be your own cause because you can choose to just not spring it up. You can choose to bear offenses. You can choose to bear wrongs. You can choose to carry problems. But there are times when iniquity calls for you to not be silent, to reprove or to complain. The same in terms of holding our peace. So five, speaking the truth unseasonably. There are times when it's not right to speak something Speaking the truth maliciously or to a wrong end. Right? You can speak truth out of hate. And you can speak truth in order to try to bring about something evil. That is forbidden. It might be just that you speak the truth if you have the right motive. In which case what you need to do is get your motive in check. And then speak the truth. We're commanded those who are spiritual are supposed to correct other people. She goes, well, here's this thing that's awful that's happening right here, but I don't feel very spiritual right now, so I'm not going to correct it. Get yourself in check, and then go correct it. Like, Stop the sinful anger, stop the whatever, stop the, the sinful attitude of whatever kind, and when you are out of that, then, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in faith, go rebuke the evil. So speaking the truth at a bad time, Speaking the truth out of hatred. Speaking the truth to accomplish an evil goal. Those are all wrong. So pick the right time. Do it in love, not hate. And do it for the glory of God. And then the same truth is useful to speak. Taking something that's true and giving it a wrong meaning, putting it in the wrong context having a different sense of the words, avoiding being charged with heresy by using equivocal expressions or doubtful ways of putting things. Heretics are particularly skilled at finding ways of saying things less clearly. It's remarkable. All of a sudden, typically heretics are very good at communicating, really good at it, just fabulous communicators. Until they get to the particular doctrine that they're trying to subvert, 
And then they just can't stop saying the equivocal wording. They just, they just can't avoid doing it. And so all of a sudden, they just keep saying things that sound sort of acceptable-ish, but don't really clear it up. And so you know, you'll have the debate that occurred over the Trinity where people were wanting to say, you know, Jesus is homoousios with the Father as opposed to homoousios with the Father. And so the entire battle of the Trinity is over the smallest letter in the Greek language, the iota. And so you'd say, homo is of like being with the Father. And homo is of the same being with the Father. And so the desire was to figure out how to say things in such a way as to not say that Jesus is God, but also make it sound like it was close enough, if somebody else believed that, to not get kicked out. Or not have them leave the church. And that happens over and over again. And so you have the divisions between Augustinianism and Pelagianism, and Augustinianism stays the same, and then semi-Pelagianism, and then Arminianism, and then hypo-Calvinism with Amaraldianism. You have more and more ways people are trying to figure out how do you smuggle in something of human action into salvation. And so you make it less and less obvious, more and more hidden, subversive, the use of equivocal phrases, saying things that are true, but not using that. One of the controversies that happened in the 1930s is people wanted to say what the Shorter Catechism says, which is, you know, the Bible, all the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments contain the Word of God. And what they wanted to do is to make that statement into, but not all of them are the words of God. And so that effort to play around with the things of God sent them straight to hell. It's not a play thing. It's the Word of God. And so this desire... This desire to twist things and to be equivocal and to take the historical wording of the church, the words of wise men, and to make it so that you can hide in ambiguity is the effort of heretics and it is sinful and we are not to do it and we shouldn't do it in ordinary life either. And the work of those who are truth tellers is to eliminate the ambiguity and to systematize and to be clear and to strangle out all the hiding places where lies can hide. And so the work of the church as it matures is to be more and more clear and to eliminate more and more of the shadow. If you are working in a place where you're taking product photos or trying to make a video, the lighting is is difficult to figure out. Your goal is to figure out how do you hide the shadows so that there aren't any shadows by having light push on all the shadows so the shadows don't appear on the screen except where you want them to be. And so the work of systematization and the advancement of the church is like figuring out where to set up the new lights to make the shadows disappear in the shot. So the people of the time do not have shadow that is in the shot, but instead they see light and only light. That's the systematizing work. Now, point six, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harshal, and partial censuring. Okay, so, you know what untruth is, you know what lying is? The difference between them is, with untruth, you're speaking something that's false, and it could be something that you're conscious of, or it could not. Right? So you could just be in error. If you're lying, there's an intentional telling of falsehood, an intentional telling of untruth. Slandering 
is telling falsehood that's negative about somebody else. Backbiting is slandering in secret. Detracting is anything where you're trying to undermine the reputation of another. Tailbearing is communicating information that there's not necessarily a duty or good reason to communicate. Whispering would be, in this context, the telling of something that's secret that is sort of tail-bearing. You, you might be backbiting, you might be telling information that's not necessary, but it's in secret. So you're sort of hiding it to avoid being known, and so you're spreading around you know, a whisper campaign. So whispering is not literally a sin. So if you have a hushed tone to your voice, it doesn't mean you're necessarily in sin. Scoffing is the deriding or mocking of a thing, treating something with a reproachful language. Reviling is treating something with the language of contempt, of hatred. And so when we deal with rash, harsh, and partial censuring, uh, the idea there is really that we are not saying something at the right time, not in the right form or with equity, and not in an appro- towards the appropriate person. And so you can have scorn that's wrongly directed when somebody doesn't deserve it. Seven, the misconstructing of intentions, words, and actions. Right? You, can, you can tell a story and try to make somebody look worse than they deserve to look. You can try to get people to believe falsehood about themselves by flattering and saying, oh, that was so good. Especially if they leave afterwards and you say, no, it wasn't. Right? That's a magnifying of that. The vainglorious boasting, look how awesome I am. You can flattering yourself. Thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, you have a duty to speak the truth about yourself and others, to accurately communicate about their own skill, to accurately communicate about your own skill, and to think those things properly. And so that means you can't deny the gifts and graces of God in yourself or in other people. Aggravating smaller faults. This is uh, something that, you know, in my own life, when I've failed in this way, it's typically... Uh, I'm deceiving myself. I'm wanting to argue for something. Um, I think that probably one of the ways that this happens is uh, if you're arguing with your spouse and you're trying to justify yourself toward your spouse, this sort of saying, well, you did all these things, and that equates to the ways I failed. There's a temptation, I think, to do that, especially in that context. Sorry, honey. And that being the case, the aggravating of smaller faults is something that you, you take something that someone has done and you try to create a moral equivalence. Uh, liberals during the time of the Soviet Union like to do that with America. They go, sure, the Soviets have gulags, but some people don't have a living wage here. And so this idea of trying to equate the things is, is, is an effort to try to avoid saying that one thing is better than another as a way of, of avoiding responsibility. Hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession. In general, it's your duty to not expose your own sins. In general, it's your duty to um, not go expose other people's sins. You know, but there are times when you have an obligation to freely confess. So if you've sinned against a particular person, you have a duty to freely confess to them what you've done if it's an outward action. And at the other end of that, you don't just go exposing negative things about yourself unnecessarily. You never excuse your sin. You always acknowledge that you are wrong when you've sinned. If it's an excuse, it's not sin. Excusing is by definition saying this wasn't wrong. Right? So you say, you killed the guy. Yes, but the killing was excused by the fact that he was trying to kill me. That's an excuse. 
It was okay. It was good work. That killing was excused. The extenuating of sins, trying to minimize the negativity of it, that is a way of trying to make ugliness look less ugly. When you're called to a free confession, you need to not hide your sin, not excuse it, and not make it look more minor than it is. So the, the next set here okay, involves altogether unnecessary discovering of infirmities. It's, you, here are things where you're displaying wrong things. That includes, when it's not necessary, that includes raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports. That encourages people to discover infirmities. You go, please tell me bad news. Please tell me negative things about people. When you encourage that, you're encouraging unnecessary discovery of weaknesses in other people. The stopping of your ears against a just defense encourages the preserving of something negative in your own mind. Okay? You've got an obligation to listen. If somebody says, this is a wrong rebuke, here is, I have a just defense, you've got a, an obligation to listen to it. So you don't stop your ears against a just defense. At a certain point, when somebody confesses things that make it clear from Scripture that the person is in sin, you can show them that the defense is not just. Evil suspicion. Have you ever like looked at what somebody's doing and assumed it's a bad motive? Right, first of all, maybe you've misunderstood it. Secondly, maybe they didn't do it out of malice. Maybe they did it because they weren't thinking as much as they should have. And if they did it out of malice, possibly, just possibly, it wasn't the worst possible motive. Maybe they weren't doing it to establish a Nazi regime. Just possibly. Right, so that idea of the worst possible motive being attributed, evil suspicion, assuming the worst, is something that has to be restrained. Envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any. Somebody gets praise and you're unhappy about it. Endeavoring or desiring to impair the deserved credit of any. Well, yeah, it was a good idea, but I had that idea too. Right? So somebody starts a business, they get something done, they make it happen, somebody else comes up and says, you know, I thought about that idea in 1993. Well, good, why didn't you do anything about it? This guy did something with it. So give him credit. He did it, he did something. Executing is harder than thinking of it. Lots of people thought of it. That guy did it. So don't say things to detract from the credit that others deserve. Rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy. We don't want to rejoice in, we don't want to be happy about when other people have their reputations harmed. We need to only harm other people's reputation when there is a duty to do so. So scornful contempt and fought admiration. Scornful contempt is thinking too negatively about people. You have somebody, you, just, you have a settled hatred against them. I hate this guy. I don't care what he does. I don't care if he repents. I hate him. I hate this guy. There's nothing he can do. I don't care. I hate him. That settled hatred is something, that settled negative thinking, no matter what a person does, is sinful and destructive, and it prevents peace from ever forming. On the other end, fond admiration, where no matter what faults a person has, no matter what failures they commit, not being willing to say, he's wrong, this is wrong, he needs to be rebuked, he needs to be disciplined, that is sin. And so, this willingness to deal with everybody without regard to persons, according to the law of God, is what we're called to. Now, the last 
this set together, 10, is the last set. And it has the breach of lawful promises, the neglect of such things as of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. Okay, so the things that bring a, good, bring a bad name, that's what this whole set is. Right? Keeping a promise brings a good name. Breaking it brings a bad name. The neglecting of things that are a good report brings a bad name. The practicing of something that brings a bad name obviously would do that. Not avoiding those things. And then the idea of not hindering it in other people. If you watch somebody else go and do something that destroys their reputation and you don't try to slow them down, you don't warn them, you don't tell them stop, but that's an act of hatred. And so we have a duty to be concerned about our reputation and we have a duty to be concerned about other people's reputations and when we see them walking to destruction, we are to warn them. So the ninth commandment is about spreading the knowledge of the truth. It is about destroying falsehood wherever it is found and it is about the concern to make sure that reputations are preserved and advanced and there's a special care to be applied to public justice. This set of concerns enables a place where debate can happen, where discussion can happen, where much discussion can occur. This is a culture that allows for doctrinal disputes and disputes about practice to actually be gone over. When everybody views each other as destroying each other's reputation, when everybody views each other as just lying, everybody ricochets off of each other. It makes it so that we're a bunch of greased BBs that can't possibly group together. We're just going to bounce around and, and squeak off. And so this commandment establishes the basis for a structuring of cultures inside of institutions like households, churches, and states. And is the commandment that controls for us a culture of both the expression of honor and also a culture where dispute does not mean blood feud. So, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Kearney? Uh, I think this question is germane to what you've been talking about, but um, I have a situational, hypothetical question. Let's say um, somebody uh, has an opportunity to start a business uh, making and selling golf clubs, and they can make $200,000 a year doing that, or they're also approached with um, a job offer where they could work selling for a business that sells heart monitors um, and uh, they, they would only make 150000 a year um, or possibly even being a nurse for uh, a Christian missionary organization and they would make 80000 or 70000 a year. Um, the, the last two examples are stuff that benefit man and uh, directly and would it be more, uh, which job would be, would it be more biblical or appropriate to, to take? Sure. So the question is, you have one job that pays more, but the work seems less obviously virtuous, and you have another job that pays less, and it seems more obviously virtuous, right? Um, so if both of them are good works, 
If neither of them is sin, both of them are good works, and one of them seems more important than the other, then there's a certain evaluating you have to do about how fulfilling you would find it to be and how much it's needful and, and the, the work that could be done. But if the work is going to occur and somebody else is going to do it and just that's the market price, then there's nothing wrong with taking the one that pays more. And in fact, I would think generally speaking, you should take the one that pays more because you are then accumulating resources that you were able to use to do other good works. And the other thing is that the price of things and the offers that people make are an expression of the relative demand and the relative supply. And so if everybody takes really low-paying jobs to do things that sound really noble, then there's going to be an oversupply of those services, and lots of other things will be neglected. And so the market signals for us the best ways we can serve other people. Higher prices tell us that there's a greater demand for that thing and a need for that service, and we can do good works for our neighbor by doing that. Um, and so that's what I've that's what I would say. Okay. Thank you. Great. Any other comments, questions, objections? Okay. Then let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ninth commandment and the way that it reveals to us the nature of reality and the way it shows us the good life and how the use of words and the creation of things that set associations can be used for helping us to be disposed to thinking of truth or they can put us against the things that are true and noble and lovely. And so we ask that you would help us to communicate truth, that you would help us to make things that dispose and, and set people in a position to support what is true and real and good. And we ask that you would help us to avoid those things that set the affections on the negative or that take us away from the truth. And you would help us with the more explicit breaking of the ninth commandment that we would not be given over to that sort of uh, lying and falsehood. But we also ask that you would help us to get in order those things that are, that are um, more nuanced and subtle and that we would be aware of the ways that our own choices and our consumption and production of things affect others and also in the companionship that we choose and how it affects our thinking. Father, we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.